1: Welcome to episode 114 of Real Life Ghost Stories.
0: Oh, you do.
1: To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Ashley Gustafson,
0: Lauren Lush,
1: Nicola Pike,
0: Colton Miller, Tom Keegan, Rebecca Saul, Kawagamam, Tommy Etta.
1: Jamie Lewis, Tammy Steger, Sandra, Nicolette Miller, Valeria Lawrence, Trisha Arnold, Shanice Martin. Carol Carl. Simone Simpson.
0: Jenny Peterson.
1: Cartier Robson.
0: Lewis Halkett.
1: Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We love you and we appreciate you every day. We sure do. We've got some birthdays today, too. Ooh. We would like to say a massive happy birthday to the lovely Betsy.
0: Happy birthday, Betsy.
1: We would also like to say a massive happy birthday to the lovely Will, who is my Instagram pal and keeps me thoroughly updated on all of the LGBTQA plus news going around.
0: Happy birthday, Will.
1: And finally, a massive happy birthday to the lovely Sammy from Out of the Woods Wildlife, which we did a massive charity drive for back in August so, we love you Sammy, happy birthday.
0: Happy birthday. And also, a massive happy birthday to Alex <laughs> Teschel who has had a birthday this week as well. Everybody's born this week. Happy birthday. <laughs>
1: happy birthday everybody. That was a lot of birthdays. It was. I like, think that's it? the most birthdays we've had.
0: Yeah, happy happy birthday.
1: We also have a promo this week for the first time in ages. Ooh. And our promo is for The Historical Natives. The Historical Natives is a weekly podcast where Joseph and Mackenzie explore bone-chilling creatures from the indigenous peoples of North America. Joseph and Mackenzie come from the Loon and Sturgeon clans of Ontario. This podcast has created such a stir in the Facebook group. Ooh, cool! It's been, it's been shared and talked about so many times in the last month that I just had to, I had to do a promo for them because I thought if you've created this much conversation in the first month of being released, like I want more people to know about this podcast. So if you are into the lore of indigenous people, which you all know we are, then please go listen to this podcast. I'm gonna have to
0: check this out, aren't I? Yeah, you are. It's
1: It's called The Historical Natives.
0: Hi there, and welcome to the Historical Natives, a podcast where we talk about the bone-chilling creatures from the indigenous peoples of North America. And We want to respect that tradition as we will only be talking about the creature and giving you an insight to where and who they belong to.
1: Episode will cover the Wetchige, an ancient shape shifting ice being who lives in the traditional wilderness of the Danza in northern Athabascan. We also need to keep in mind that even though we are called the historical natives, these clans and the people these creatures belong to are still here today. We are simply the storyteller
0: and the listener. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram at The Historical Natives, and our website is thehistoricalnatives.ca.
1: Which brings us to our film review this week. Our film review is The Platform. The platform was released in 2019. It has 7 out of 10 on IMDb and 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. In the future, prisoners housed in vertical cells watch as inmates in the upper cells are fed while those below starve. I feel like that's a very simplistic synopsis for what the film is actually about.
0: Although it is kind of exactly what it's about.
1: But also not (laughs) which so the film is about and they're not all prisoners that's the other thing Mm. there are some people who are there voluntarily they are in a vertical prison uh where there's two people to a cell there's a hole in the middle of the floor at one point every day a platform comes down and the people on the first cell get their choice of the food and then the platform lowers And there's less and less food, obviously, as more and more people get access to it. But the key to the film is there is actually enough food, we think, for everybody in the cells if everybody only took what they needed to take. That's what the key is. Yeah. So what were your thoughts on this film?
0: I think I've got a couple of thoughts that are a bit random. I'm glad it wasn't done by Hollywood. I feel like when we read the synopsis, I was a bit like, oh, this is going to be too gruesome for you because I know you don't like the sort of body horror Slash slash a uh, kind of genre Where there's unnecessary violence It was violent But I thought it was appropriately violent I don't think it was unnecessarily violent And I think Hollywood would have made it un- Unnecessarily violent Because that was where You would take it I think if you were trying to make money This was done in a way that was tasteful I'm also a little bit A little bit annoyed that it comes up on Netflix <laughs> With it dubbed Like you have to turn the dubbing off Like it doesn't do that for any other of the sort of foreign language movies that we've watched so I'm a bit confused why that one has dubbing
1: definitely don't watch it overdubbed with English because it's incredibly distracting it's
0: distracting that's the problem with it. incredibly
1: distracting so we started watching it and and as Dan said it came up overdubbed with English and then we actually turned the overdubbing off and just went with the subtitles and it made it way better so Mm. would definitely recommend if you want to watch it try and do it with subtitles because I just found it way easier to concentrate on what was going on when there were subtitles, which for me is a very, very strange thing to say.
0: <laughs> is. I'm also going to say at this point, if you don't want the film spoiled for you, skip forward a bit because I need to say something.
1: I um, was really worried about watching this film, but it was recommended to us so many times that I thought, okay, we got we to gotta do this. We're going to watch it. I had an assumption, so I'm a bit emetophobic. I don't like vomit. It really freaks me out. There's no vomit in the film for my fellow metaphors <laughs> out there. So that's a good thing. But there is, I really struggled with the amount of eating that was in the film. And I understand there's there's a reason for it. Like there's yep. that's the whole point of the film, right? It's about food. <laughs> food. <laughs> but I really struggled watching the bits where people were like trying to gorge themselves as quickly as possible before the platform left their cell. I really struggled with it. And I didn't watch the violent bits because they were gratuitous, but it was necessary for mm. the, the the way where people were living in this prison. So I, I get why it was there. It wasn't like saw levels or like hostile no. levels of violence. That kind of gore porn that we see in a lot of those kind of films. But there was there was violence.
0: Yeah, but it, I, I feel like it needed to be there to tell a story. I liked this film. The ending spoiled it a little bit for me. I just felt the ending was a bit of a nothing.
1: That has been the general consensus. People have really been divided by the film, which I understand. But also a lot of people are saying it was brilliant until the ending and the ending spoiled it. I felt like the ending was very anticlimactic mm. and it needed even another, literally another 60 seconds.
0: They did wonderful things with this film when they were showing the people on that prepare the food where there was no dialogue. It was all done to classical music and you got... The gist of what they were trying to show you each time it was up there, I felt like it needed that that kind of scene where they reacted to the platform coming back up. Yes, now, I don't understand the significance. Of the, I didn't understand the significance of the child, and I didn't understand the significance of where Goran went at the end or what that bottom floor was. But I felt like if they had done something with that platform going back up, and we got the we'd got the fit, we got the shot of the platform arriving with the child at the top and the reaction set to classical music, it would have been a better film.
1: Again, yeah, 60 seconds. Another 60 seconds where you saw her arrive yep. on the platform. The The protagonist of the film decides that enough is enough. It's not fair that there's people starving while people are gorging themselves on the higher levels. They try really desperately to get people to only eat what they need, but obviously human beings don't do that. And they decide they need to send a message back up to the top. But that means traveling with the platform the whole way down to the bottom and they don't know how far the bottom is it's it is an allegory for the times that we live in definitely and i'm not going to sit here and and talk politically about like you know how terrible society is and blah blah blah, blah because i mean just if you watch the film it, it is it it it's demonstrating the problems with society and somebody commented on instagram and said it was a very like ham-fisted attempt at demonstrating it and i do agree stripping it back to the basic need of food is actually quite a good thing because everybody needs food to survive
0: see now i don't even think it was about food i think it was demonstrating how trickle-down economy works
1: yeah, yeah but uh, you can't talk about something like that in a film and make it really <laughs> convoluted because people like yeah, me yeah. aren't going to understand it yeah, but yeah. when you strip it back yeah, yeah. to something like food which is a basic human need then you understand it oh I see what you're saying, Yeah. Sorry. So uh, I understand that it wasn't necessarily about food it is but it also isn't because yeah, yeah. it's an allegory for something else but stripping it back to being about food makes it accessible for everybody
0: yeah and I, I thought there was enough you know there was enough threat about it as well to make it kind of disturbing
1: oh i thought it was incredibly disturbing
0: before it got the redemption thing it was like you just didn't want them to wake up on the lower (laughs) floor no i was
1: and that's the other thing they are in each on each floor for a month and then you're randomly selected to go to another floor that could mean you're on floor number one where you get your choice of all the food that you possibly want or you could be on the lowest possible floor where you literally get nothing for Mm -hmm. a month because other people have taken it all and taken more than they need Oh, it is a film you could talk about for a million years. I thought it was really interesting, but also really disturbing. I don't know if I enjoyed it. I think that's the wrong word to use for it. But it did make me think quite a lot.
0: I think I did enjoy it. It might not be the right choice of words, but I did. And I think I'll give it four out of five.
1: I think I'm going to give it a four too. Because... It's not that kind of gore and violence I can't watch. It really freaks me out. And I also can't watch people gorging themselves on food. Again, it really freaks me out. But it was an interesting film. I thought they did good things with it. I thought the actors were amazing. Like incredible. It's very dark and very disturbing. But it just, it really needed another like 60 seconds at the end. Yep. Really, really, really did. So I'm going to give it a four. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which brings us to our story this week.
0: Okay, haunted canteen.
1: No, I mean, not even close. There is no correlation between the story and the film this week. But I'm going to start with a question for you. Okay. What do you know of the Borley Rectory? Nothing. Have you heard of it? No. Okay, so I have heard of it. It's one of those places that comes up on lists of like the most haunted places in the world. The most haunted places in the UK. And it it is somewhere where I always thought I really need to look into this and do a bit of research. And this week was the week. So sit back and relax. Relax. Because I'm going to tell you the story of Borley Rectory. There's lots of names in this story, I'm sorry.
0: Do I need a pen and paper?
1: No, you'll be okay. okay. But I just, in the span, in the short lifespan of the Borley Rectory, there are three different families, four technically different okay. families who live there. All right, okay. So you've got to just keep that in mind. that okay. There's going to be lots of names flying around.
0: I'll just refer to them as family one, family two, family three and family 18.
1: Good. In 1863, Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull built a beautiful gothic brick house in the middle of the Suffolk countryside. The house was home to Reverend Bull's family of 14 and only stood for 76 years until it was burnt to the ground. 76 years is not a long lifespan for a building in England, but what is crammed into the 76 years is a controversial story that has resulted in the building being dubbed the most haunted house in the UK. Back in 1863, the area surrounding the house had seen the end of an industrial boom and was slowly returning to being a quiet agricultural community. The land that the house was built on was indeed calm, serene and beautiful. But according to local legend, it had a tragic history that began way before the building of the house. According to the legend, the site was home to a majestic monastery back in the 14th century. Monks at the time, and many still today, were required to take a vow of chastity, poverty and piety upon entering an order. So falling in love with a nun wasn't really an option. But unfortunately, in a true tale of star-crossed lovers, that is exactly what happened. A monk and a nun from a local convent fell hopelessly in love and began an illicit affair. They were discovered and were immediately sentenced to death for breaking the vows they had made to God and to their order. The monk was hanged on the grounds of the monastery, but the nun? She suffered a far worse fate. She was bricked up alive into the walls of the convent. Another local legend told the tale of a wealthy landowner, Henry Waldgrave, who had taken a beautiful nun from France and forced her into marriage. They had had a disagreement, after which Waldgrave strangled her and left her to rot in the cellar of a building on the land. It is unsurprising that the land would become the site of one of the most notorious hauntings of all time. The locals would tell stories of headless horsemen and horse-drawn coaches that would tear through the narrow country roads in the dead of night. They would tell stories of a phantom nun that would be seen traversing the land. These stories aren't unusual in rural England, but in these stories they all had one thing in common. Their destination always seemed to be the home built by Reverend Bull, the Borley Rectory. The rectory was enormous. It had 23 rooms, connected by three staircases on the two main floors. It boasted a huge cellar space and had storage space in the roof. There was no gas, no central heating, no electricity and no mains water. The water was collected from a well in the garden. As with most haunted house stories, the oddities began as soon as the family moved in. And as with most haunted house stories, the activity was relatively harmless at first. It started with footsteps. Footsteps would be heard running across the upper levels of the house when there was no one there. The family would hear footsteps run at them in the house, when nobody could be seen to be causing them. In various parts of the house, the roaring sound of a waterfall would appear suddenly, and then disappear with no evidence of any running water being present. In fact, the house had no running water at all, so there was no way that a burst pipe, for example, could have been causing these strange sounds. The pulley bells that were used to allow for communication between the various rooms of the house would go off constantly throughout the day and night, and this continued even after the reverend had become frustrated by the incessant tinkling and cut off all of the cords for the bell system. And it wasn't long before the children of the bull residence began to see a nun that would lurk in the shadows or peer around corners at the children. She was frequently seen gliding through the grounds of the rectory, so much so that Bull had a summer house built overlooking the pathway that she seemed to walk, and would spend his evenings sitting in his chalet, trying to catch a glimpse of her. While Bull was fascinated by the ghostly goings-on, his children and his staff were terrified. His youngest daughter, Ethel, was regularly physically attacked by an unseen force that would slap her so hard that welts would appear on her arms and on her face. Multiple staff reported seeing shadowy figures peering in the windows at them while they were working in the house. In 1882, Reverend Henry Bull passed away, and the property was left to his eldest son, Harry. The paranormal phenomena continued, and Harry began to document the strange things that he now encountered as the head of the household. The nun continued to appear, and disappear, throughout the grounds during the day and night, Harry was walking the grounds of the rectory one day with his faithful dog when the dog began to bark and yelp and eventually hid cowering in fear beneath a shrub. Harry couldn't understand it. This was not usual behaviour for his dog and he couldn't see anything that would have caused such fear in the animal. And then he saw it. From within the tree line a figure plodded out into his view. It was a body, what looked like a headless corpse, shambled forward and seemed to board a coach before disappearing. Much like his father before him, Harry became obsessed with the spirits that seemed to be lurking around every corner. Their lives were so plagued that Harry boarded up the dining room window so that his family could eat their evening meals together in peace without the featureless faces leering in at them. And after living in fear of ghosts that haunted the rectory, Harry Bull died in 1927 and the house was passed on to Reverend Guy Eric Smith and his wife Mabel. They were a long-married couple and had no children. They'd spent many years in India and only returned to England when Reverend Smith's health began to fail. What is interesting about the Smiths moving to the house is that they weren't local, They had no prior knowledge of local lore, nor did they know anything about the previous activity of the house. What they did notice, however, was that their new helper in the house, a young local girl, was incredibly skittish and seemed spooked to be in the house. When they confronted her about what was troubling her, she told them about all the ghost stories that she had been told and the legends of the headless horsemen and the nun that roamed the grounds. The Smiths were highly amused at first, but soon realised that if this girl was so frightened, then there was a high risk that parishioners would be reluctant to visit the rectory for meetings. The Smiths took no notice of the stories, until Mrs Smith was busy herself, cleaning some cupboards one day. Wedged between a cupboard and the wall was a brown paper bag that she struggled to retrieve. She eventually managed to wrestle it out of its hiding place and unwrapped it carefully and inside was a small and perfectly formed human skull. And that was when their issues began. Mrs Smith began to hear heavy footsteps dragging in a room that was no longer in use. They would see anomalous lights in the windows of the house where no light should be. She began to see the ghostly apparition of a nun gliding through the grounds. Whisperings pervaded the air and knocking sounds seemed to emanate from inside the mirrors of the home. Items were not only being moved, but hurled around rooms, and they began to feel that they were quite literally in danger from being seriously injured by this unseen force. They decided that the only way to proceed was to have the property thoroughly and professionally investigated. They sent a call out to the Daily Mirror for help to find a parapsychical researcher that could help them. And their call was answered, by none other than Harry Price. When Price arrived, so too did hordes of people. They literally came by the busload to see the Borley Ghost. Price was the victim of violent attacks of the poltergeist that seemed to be wreaking havoc in the rectory. He had vases hurled at him, as well as stones that materialised from nowhere, and he reported that the knockings from inside the mirror weren't mere knockings, but were in fact spirit messages that were meant to be deciphered. It was too much for the Smiths. They had been plunged into a bizarre, unknown and dangerous world, and every inch of it was being reported daily in the newspapers. In 1929, they left the rectory and never returned, and so the building stood quiet for around six months. And in 1930 a family called the Foyster family moved in. Reverend Lionel Algernon Foyster moved in with his wife Marianne and their adopted daughter Adelaide, and they too immediately began to experience strange happenings in the house. Except this wasn't played out in the public eye. Harry Price came to visit them once and was never welcomed back again after a disagreement with Marianne, so the Foyster family faced the supernatural powers alone. It began yet again with the sound of the tinkling of the servant bells throughout the house, but quickly escalated to objects being thrown through the air, and items appearing and disappearing throughout the house. They heard footsteps in vacant rooms, both running and dragging, lights flashed on and off in the house. Adelaide was locked into rooms to which there was no key, and her mother and father would scramble to try and get her out to safety. There is no doubt that the Foyster family would have known what they were moving into. The house had been in the newspapers only six months previously, but it's unlikely that they had any concept of how fraught their lives would become and how it would all centre around Marianne. A disembodied voice would call out to Marianne from the empty rooms. Marianne, dear. Adelaide was two and a half years old at the time and wasn't capable of such trickery. They began to smell peculiar perfume around the house and couldn't find the source. Glass bottles were regularly hurled down the stairs to smash at the bottom. And it wasn't much longer before the writing began to appear on the walls. It would be illegible at first. Random scrolling across the walls that no one could decipher. Eventually two phrases were scribbled on the wall in handwriting that no one recognised. Marianne, please help get. And, Marianne, light mass prayers. As the activity worsened, Marianne was ripped from her bed and thrown across the room, and eventually Reverend Foster conducted two exorcisms in the house, both of which seemed to calm the activity for a time, at least. At night, Marianne and Reverend Foster would lie in bed and listened to the strange, warbling and disjointed music that would spill out from the adjacent church. They knew no one was in there. No one ever was every time they checked. And they left the house in 1935. Throughout all of this time, Harry Price and the paranormal research community had been watching quietly from the sidelines. And when the Foysters left, they saw their opportunity and swooped in. Price rented the property for a year, and with a team of 48 paranormal investigators, they set about a round-the-clock documentation of the events of Borley Rectory. One of the key ways in which information was obtained was through regular seances conducted by psychic medium Helen Glanville. These seances were held in the summer house and yielded what some believed to be spectacular results. In one of these séances, the team made contact with the spirit of a woman named Marie Lair, who claimed to have been a nun that had lived in France. She told the séance attendees that she had been murdered by her husband and her remains were hidden in the cellar of the rectory. They then made contact with a sinister spirit named Sunex Amoures, who claimed that he would burn the rectory to the ground. After Price's tenancy was up, him and his team of investigators left the building with hordes of evidence of poltergeist activity that was turned into two books. Captain W. H. Gregson then purchased the rectory with money on his mind. He had been watching the coverage of the house and had read the books with great interest and in a stroke of entrepreneurial genius he decided that he would capitalise on the infamy of the rectory by setting up a ghost tours business. Unfortunately for Gregson, the spirit of Sunex Amores wasn't ready to let that happen, and in 1939, the rectory did indeed burn to the ground. The insurance company believed that the fire had been started deliberately, by an oil lamp being dropped in the hallway, but Gregson vehemently denied that he was in any way responsible for the fire. In the following years, Harry Price went back to Borley Rectory, and while rooting around in the ruins of the old building, he found what appeared to be human remains hidden deep in what was left of the cellar. The remains were removed and buried in the Liston churchyard. We're going to have a brief pause. Okay. What are your thoughts so far?
0: Oh, I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like... I I just can't even imagine, like, doing some cleaning and then finding... A child's skull,
1: very bizarre.
0: I'm glad we don't live in an old house.
1: Me too. And I don't know what you. I mean, if you found a child's skull, who do you call?
0: Not the Ghostbusters, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> well, maybe you do actually in this case.
1: Or maybe you do. Or do you do you call a museum and go? Uh, or do you call the police?
0: I'm, I think you have to call the police to start yeah, with, because in case it's like a, a murder investigation.
1: There was a child in this school that I used to teach in who came into school one day and they had decided to put down a conservatory and had uncovered two skeletons buried in their garden and obviously they had to call the police and the police had to come and do like a, a murder investigation type thing just in case but they were like ancient bones yeah that they had just randomly mistakenly uncovered but how crazy is that i
0: mean it's crazy and they probably stirred up some stuff they shouldn't have I I don't know
1: if that would really worry me. I'd just be like, whoa, we found a body in our garden.
0: I'm not like, like, I feel like, I don't know. You never know, do you, with resting grounds, whether they've been rested on purpose or whether they've just died and been buried.
1: That's that's a good point, actually. You don't know if it was their intended burial place or if it was just out of necessity that they ended up there.
0: But in this instance, it's neither, is it? Because I don't think anybody buries the head of a child behind a cupboard.
1: Yeah. So how did it end up there?
0: And where's the rest of the skeleton? And why is it just the head? And why are you keeping it in a brown paper bag? And I, I, it mm, it sounds like dark stuff to me. Do you think? Yeah. Well, it's it's a bit ritualistic, isn't it? Like, why have you just? I mean, that's where my head goes all the time because you know how crazy scared I am of everything. Yeah. But I guess it could just be someone that lost their child and then couldn't, you know, kept it because they couldn't bear kept to,
1: their head until well, well, it became know, a skeleton. You?
0: Well, you don't know, do you? Because it's you know, it's it's not something, thankfully, that we've gone through, but it's quite a sad thing, isn't it? So you don't know, you don't. Know. No, you don't know. That's true. I, I mean, I... I am almost hundred percent certain that it was some kind of devil worship, like sacrament thing. But I'm just saying sacrifice. You mean? That's what I meant. What did I say? <laughs> sacrament. Well, Although I mean, a sacrament <laughs> is the sacrament in the keeping. <laughs> yeah, it kind of uh, works. So yeah, it just it just it's just a weird place to find a, a skull, isn't it? And I can't really. I'm quite fixated with it. Other than that, there's clearly, like, loads of stuff going on in there, let's be honest. Like, you've got poltergeist stuff going on, you've got messages on the wall, you've got, like, creepy voices speaking to you. I feel like that family that had no involvement with Harry Price had it hardest.
1: Oh, Marianne and the voices Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because that's when they started to, like, start talking to him and, like, Yeah, calling
1: stuff. for her specifically and... Yeah. writing on the wall like that's a whole step up but then the little girl in the first family was physically assaulted yeah, regularly true.
0: yeah I mean let's just let's talk about let's talk about is it Reverend Bull or have I just made it up
1: yeah they were all reverends
0: okay so let's talk about Reverend Bull who built it in the first place I love the energy of this guy that was like heard reports from his kids that were clearly scared about something walking around in the garden and is like I know what I do I'll build a summer house so I can watch it
1: he <laughs> in my head reverend bull is a really eccentric old school english gentleman kind of like and i can see him walking through the grounds with a a shotgun crooked over his forearm and the kids are like daddy what are you doing and he's like well i'm hunting for the nun (laughs) you know that kind of mad english eccentric man that's what i'm seeing
0: yeah but i that energy is is quite bizarre to me because i would not have that reaction at all would you not no (laughs) that surprises me (laughs) and i also think that you know zach Bagans has got a lot to learn from harry price because you know we know that there's obviously more bopping around on his tv show than just the four or five of them however depending on what episode you're watching but if you want to do ghost investigations properly you clearly need at least 40 people don't you that's if harry price has taught us anything
1: it's a pretty incredible <laughs> feat to undertake, 48 paranormal <laughs> investigators, round-the-clock investigation. That is fucking dedication to ghosts, man. That is dedication.
0: I feel like Harry Price. some of Harry Price's evidence might have been similar evidence to what they get with, uh, what was Derek Akora's show called? Or most was, Haunted. Most Haunted, where actually like the sounds they're hearing is the, the rest of their crew running around upstairs. Uh, I feel like there might be some evidence in Harry Price's book that's potentially not paranormal it might just happen to be the sheer amount of people we had in that house now the house is very big i take that into consideration yeah but 48 people is a lot of people a lot
1: of people to be running around and, and expecting everybody to be perfectly quiet at all times mm-hmm. so that you can only hear ghosts it's a big ask
0: i also i'm also not down with seances you know if you think something's haunted don't stir it up more
1: but to the ground move on they're just a very bizarre thing seances aren't they well, but they I, were big at the time. Yeah, they
0: were. And it's it, and it's it's where Harry Price came from, really, isn't it? Like, it's, it's it's that spiritualism background is what gave him the impetus to do what he did, I guess. But I just, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know whether that's the way to go. I'm sorry I keep referring to you as man, by the way. So today, that's I don't okay, know I don't know
1: what's going on, but okay. <laughs> I, uh, I do need to point out that Harry Price is the same investigator, I believe, who said that Jeff the mongoose was the most compelling paranormal evidence <laughs> that he had ever recorded. Very important to remember that.
0: But this guy's full into his paranormal stuff, isn't he? So, oh, you know.
1: he is. He is all in, babe. He is like, that is his Tinder bio, is paranormal bitches only. You know, he that... doesn't
0: even have a profile picture. He's just got like some of his evidence.
1: Oh, <laughs> one of those little uh, weird stick men that are on the... <laughs> yeah. That are on ghost adventures. That's what his <laughs> profile is.
0: Or would be, I guess, because he's definitely not alive for now, right?
1: But there's more to the story.
0: Oh, this is going to be one of those ones where you guys are fabricated and actually nothing happened because there was no rectory. <laughs>
1: I'm well known for my evil laugh, but would you like to hear the rest of the story? You would think that our story would end here. Years and years of dire hauntings, investigators, families in crisis, star crossed lovers. ...and the discovery of human remains. Except we need to rewind a little bit, and for good reason. It's really important to understand where the information about Borley Rectory came from. And in truth, the majority of the tales that are told in this episode come from Harry Price. Yes, the local legends were there about the nun and the monk... ...and there was even a legend that Reverend Henry Bull had raped and murdered a maidservant in the house... But there's no factual basis for any of these legends. And similar ones exist all over England that aren't exclusive to Borley. And then there's the problem of Harry Price. Every event that allegedly happened to Reverend Smith and his wife was all reported by Harry Price and not them themselves. And they, along with the Daily Mail reporter who had visited the house with Price, later admitted that they believed that Price had faked much of the phenomenon. The reporter wrote a scathing exposé where he revealed he had been hit in the head by a flying rock mid-investigation, tackled Price to the ground and found him to have had pockets full of rocks. The testimony of the Foister family came from a meticulous diary that was kept by Reverend Foister and published by, you guessed it, Harry Price. Marianne Foister later admitted that the activity reported by her husband was actually just her playing practical jokes as a means to distract from the fact that she was having an affair with her lodger. Well, apparently. Marianne herself conducted an interview for a report by the New Horizons in which she said her husband was experiencing financial problems and his diary was actually designed to be a novel that was written as a diary account of a haunting. She claimed that Harry Price knew this, but chose to market it as a true story instead. As with old stories, there are two sides, and then there's the truth, and we'll actually never really know how much of the hauntings were true and how much of it was invented by Harry Price. But Marianne did say one thing that was interesting. They genuinely heard footsteps throughout the house, and they genuinely didn't know where the writing on the wall had come from. They never found a rational explanation for it. Marianne explicitly said she didn't believe in ghosts, but she did believe that there were events in the house that were truly inexplicable. Bordy Rectory is still hailed as Britain's most haunted house, despite the fact that a book called We Faked the Ghosts of Bordy Rectory was released, which was written by a contemporary and colleague of Harry Price, which outlined that the entire story of Bordy Rectory was a hoax. But beneath all the exaggeration, fabrication and money-grabbing, there are still very real people who have had very real experiences. When Russell Old was 17, his uncle asked him if he'd like to go to Borley Rectory, the most haunted place in Britain. He'd never heard of it and was willing to go for the jaunt. As he and his uncle drove through the Suffolk countryside, Russell felt the hair on his arm start to prickle. The conversation with his uncle had been light and jovial but Russell somehow instinctively knew that they must be getting close to the ruins of the rectory. He was feeling uncomfortable when they pulled up the car, because he sensed that something wasn't right. As he turned to tell his uncle that he wanted to leave, something stopped him dead in his tracks. Among the ruins of the rectory was a small boy. It was a small boy with a tweed jacket... And he looked both distinctly Victorian and distinctly out of place. He turned to see if his uncle was looking at the same thing, and in that moment the boy disappeared. His uncle hadn't seen him and was thoroughly bemused when Russell begged him to leave. He told his uncle what happened and managed to get himself talked into a nighttime investigation. As they drove back to Bordy Rectory in the creeping dark of evening, something big thumped into the side of the car. They pulled over in shock, but there was no damage to the car and they couldn't see anything that they had hit. But the thump was loud. There should have been some damage to the car or at least evidence if they had hit an animal. They got back into the car slightly shaken and continued their journey. They hadn't gotten very far when Russell's uncle pulled the car over to allow for an oncoming car to pass them. The road was narrow and otherwise deserted but there certainly wasn't room for two cars to comfortably pass. But as they waited and the headlights approached, something seemed off. The headlights got bigger, the car approached, and then nothing. No car, no headlights, nowhere for them to have gone on the straight narrow road, nothing. But maybe it wasn't a car at all. Maybe they had experienced one of the long-talked-about phantom coaches that tear up and down the country roads of this rural Suffolk village. Or maybe their fear of Borley Rectory had gotten the better of them. So is it possible that the Borley Rectory is both the home of a bizarre hoax and a haunting? Or do people let their preconceptions of the place get the better of them when they visit? We'll probably never know.
0: Why you got to do this to me all the time? You know, I'm invested in these things. And then you go, "Nope, there was never a rectory. We well, didn't quite say that, but similar. I also, I'm not entirely sure whether, you know, disparaging someone that believes that the, that Jeff, the mongoose is the most compelling paranormal evidence in the world is actually the right thing to do because he's clearly a very grounded individual and very scientific in, in what he does. Clearly. (laughs) It's disappointing.
1: It is disappointing.
0: But I'm holding on to the fact that Marianne said that there was some stuff that she couldn't explain. And I'd imagine it probably is what you said last, which is that there probably is a haunting, but it's been elaborated on and exploited by someone that is making paranormal business and industry for himself, I guess, is the way to look at it. I'm very disappointed that, that the legend around Mr. Ball is a, is just that. I feel like, you know, he was quite an eccentric guy in the way that it was told before. And I'm a little bit disappointed that actually he, he didn't, you know, there's no evidence of him actually building that summer house to watch a ghost.
1: <laughs> it's really hard to, with this story, to decipher what's real in inverted commas and what's basically been invented by Harry Price. Like Marianne's interview was really interesting. She asked for it only to be published after she died. Okay. Because she was sick of the story. Yeah, fair. <laughs> she didn't make any money from it. She wasn't interested. People didn't like her. So I think this story is about, like, oh, she had an affair with a lodger. And, and yeah. you know, that, and I don't think that's true. I think actually people just didn't like her in okay. the area. She was very much, she was much younger than Reverend Foister, and a very gregarious woman. And they did take on lots of lodgers. But for financial reasons, it would seem. Well, she, if you've got a
0: house that big in this too, if you're about you might as well make use of it, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. But she had no interest in ghosts whatsoever. But what she did say was really interesting. And that was that around the time the writing started appearing, they had taken in a lodger who had serious mental health difficulties. And it seems that he was suffering from shell shock. And that Reverend Foister took a particular interest in him because he felt really sorry for him and wanted to give him a home and and so on. And Marianne said that she believed that somehow this man was responsible for the writing on the wall. She didn't think that he actually physically wrote it, but she think there was something, she thought there was something about his psyche that created the paranormal. Oh, phenomena that they experienced in the house that so came
0: with the lodger as opposed to the house yes which yeah i mean we, accounts of people being haunted uh, is not
1: and we we regularly talk about poltergeist activity yeah. being centered around teenage girls for example yeah. when they go through puberty or the hormones of teenagers or the angst of teenagers yeah. so who knows
0: wow okay that does that adds an interesting element to it there's obviously two more things to talk about yes the first one is that you know, the later experience of the 17-year-old dude seeing a little child in the rubble. Nobody wants to see a child ghost. That's horrifying. I'm not too bothered about the car thing because, like, old cars make noises. Like, it is what it is. And seeing something coming on to you that's not there coming on to you, that's not what I meant. <laughs> seeing those sexy headlights <laughs> coming on to you in the countryside. Yeah, I, I mean, there's loads of reports of stuff like that. And that's not necessarily linked to the to the rectory, is it? That could be anything. I am intrigued by the child ghost. I don't know what to make of it. It's probably, there's probably an element of confirmation bias. Undoubtedly, I'd say even though he didn't know what he was going to, his uncle did, didn't he? So you get, you get a gist of that as well. And there's undoubtedly like, you know, he said the the conversation was jovial or whatever in the lead up until the atmosphere changed, but they were undoubtedly talking about where they were going. You don't take someone to a haunted place and go, don't tell them anything do you if you're going do you want to go to the most haunted place in britain and then you put them in the car and then you talk about the football for the rest of the journey it's a little bit odd the other thing we need to talk about is this is further evidence that ghosts can start fires and it's there's, there's just too much of it now yeah i can't
1: unless it wasn't the ghost that started the fire at all
0: what makes you say that? I mean, there's no possible reason that someone that buys a really expensive house that they can't afford <laughs> would set it on fire, is there really?
1: I do think that this man, this Captain Gregson, had a, like, a genuine good idea going with this haunted tours idea. Literal busloads of people showed up when the Smiths lived there to catch a glimpse of this ghost. Mm. You know, so he probably was aware there was a lucrative business going on there. However... I did say later in the story that Harry Price found human remains after after it had burned to the ground.
0: I mean, but are we at the... And I don't want to say this because, you know, how I feel that probably all this paranormal stuff is true, even though he's involved. Are we now at the point where we can't really take Harry Price at his word anymore?
1: (laughs) Well, considering there was massive speculation that the remains were in fact pig remains that they weren't human remains at all and that harry price potentially discovered in inverted commas remains to try and legitimize his own story so i said the remains were buried but they weren't buried in borley because the church at borley refused to have them buried in the graveyard because they said well they're not human it's a pig stop these
0: are pork chops yeah I mean I'm frying them right now what you, What? Do you, what do you want from me I can see the trotters for fuck's sake
1: so questionable as to whether or not I mean I'm not saying Harry Price set the house on fire or am
0: I oh you're saying oh you're blaming Harry Price are you
1: well it's very it conveniently fits into the narrative that they contacted this
0: I would just said it was more likely an insurance job to be well honest. that too um But you are missing one crucial bit of evidence. Oh, am I? Yeah. In the seance, that demon said he was going to burn the house down.
1: Exactly. And isn't it interesting how, again, it fits into Harry Price's narrative that the house burned down?
0: You weren't at that seance.
1: I was not at that seance. This is true. So
0: you don't know whether that demon wanted to burn the house down or not? I don't know. I don't know. And it's very convenient for the demon to blame his actions on a human being. Just saying.
1: Are you saying I'm the demon? (laughs) because <laughs> I feel like that's a reach
0: <laughs> no I'm not saying that who else is demons
1: Christina Aguilera she's a gin. <laughs> I'm a demon Harry Price is burning houses down for fun
0: <laughs> I never said that you said that
1: allegedly allegedly that's what you need to preface everything with allegedly so what are your thoughts now on the Borley Rectory
0: well I mean it's haunted as anything isn't it clearly haunted
1: it's funny how, despite the fact that there is loads of evidence that the hauntings never happened and that it was a hoax basically perpetrated to make money, it still is considered one of the most haunted places in the world. And I think that's amazing. And I, there was a lot of conversation in the stuff that I read about how it was the the narrative continued post-World War II because fuck me, people needed something that wasn't horrific to think about and talk about. So there was like post-World War One, there was like loads of column inches that were dedicated to the Borley Rectory and then it was reinvigorated after World War II.
0: It also benefits from being in an age where proof is hard to find. Yes, true. <laughs> you'd just be like, nowadays if it still existed, you'd be like, set up some cameras.
1: Yeah, nothing's happening, fine.
0: 60, I don't know why it went with 60. Let's do 72 hours. we we'll get get mate in Nick Groff and his friend. They yeah. do their paranormal lockdown. 72 hours later, they got some random EVPs and a rock falling. Job done, isn't it? It's not that haunted. But you couldn't do that in those days, so you relied on the, on the word of mouth. And there was 48 people to corroborate his evidence. So <laughs> that's bigger than a jury. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and if you enjoyed this week's episode you can find everything you need to know about us on real life ghost podcast.com you can send in your own spooky stories to real ghost stories podcast at gmail.com you can support us on patreon patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for five dollars a month or for two dollars a month you get access to lots of extra content and on that note we shall see you next week
0: bye Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it, you're gonna scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.